uh, that's a big step. By the way, uh, th that get-together where they were giving you the money, there, there wasn't like any crass dancing or anything involved in that, right? No? Okay, good. I didn't think so, but all right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of what should really bother us, uh, audience participation moment, just one thing. Is there, what one thing just really gets you? Just one thing that, you know, like, in, in the world around you, and you don't have to talk about anybody that's intimately involved in your life. You can do it safely if they're here. You can talk about what? <laughs> roundabouts. Okay. First world problem, but all right, roundabouts. What? Chicanes. Okay. <laughs> what else? Crazy drivers. Okay. Another. Well, that complaining. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Okay. This is not going the direction I wanted to go. Prophetic corrections happening already. <laughs> Who else? Political fanatics. Okay. All right. Well, only half the crowd agreed with you. And a quarter of them don't agree with the other quarter. So <laughs> who else? A couple more. Things that bother you. Entitlement. Entitlement. Know-it-alls. Opinionated people. Uh, okay. Gossip. Ooh, that's good. There's probably a lot of things that bother us. I don't know if you know that most people at some point in your life this light goes on, and you realize that what bothers you often says something about you more than it says about what is bothering you. Anybody had that realization? And it's, it's kind of a sobering moment. Uh, let me tell you this story. And I'm not changing the names. I'm not going to tell you who it is. It's nobody here. Uh, it's not me either. When I tell these stories and I try to take myself out of them, everybody knows that's you. That sounds like one of John's dumb things. So... A uh, guy standing in line, Southwest Airlines, waiting to get in. You know, if you've ever flown Southwest, they have the, the little A, B, C, right? And he's an A person. He's graduated into that. So they get on the plane first, and, you know, it's, it's A, and then you have numbers, B, and you have numbers. And so have you ever been in a line and someone, you know, th there's a crowd of people, like a, a, a loose crowd, and then every, they go, okay, it's time to board, and you all start moving, and everyone's kind of, they don't want to be rude. They don't want to step in front of somebody else. And, and it kind of sorts out, right? And everyone fits in, and the line starts stretching out. And then someone always comes along, and they're walking along, and, and they kind of just walk up like that. And they stand beside you, like on the entrance ramps, you know, getting on to 270. They're kind of like driving alongside you, and the little dotted lines are disappearing, and, and, and they're not moving. And the people behind you are on your bumper, and, you know, and there's all the little orange barrels, and you're getting, you're sweating, you know. Well, this is more a stationary version of that. And this guy is standing there, and there's a, a man with his boarding pass and a, like a preteen girl. And they're obviously waiting. You know, when the person, when the, when the line moves, that person moves forward, and they go, right? Well, this guy's standing there, and he goes, I'm tired of this. I'm really tired of people doing this. And something inside him was like this, you know, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not taking it anymore. You guys remember that movie? That was like back in the 70s. I'm sorry. I was, I was just a infant. But I remember that line, won an Academy Award. He, he just goes, excuse me, uh, can I see your boarding pass? He asked the guy this. He said, because I'm trying to figure out, if I'm, he, he was nervous, that I'm trying to figure out, am I am I in the right line? And the guy, the guy gets it, right? He's already feeling awkward, and he goes, oh, you know, go ahead, <laughs> like that. And so he steps on, feeling like, all right, I stood up for myself, you know, a little victory for mankind, and so he goes through, you know, gets the, the ticket scanned, goes through, and as soon as he walks through, he turns around, and he sees the guy bring his little preteen up, and he has the, the, 
thing checked, and he gives it to the little preteen to go through. And he realizes, oh my gosh, the guy isn't flying. He just wants to get his kid on the plane. You know, you ever, you know what it's like? It's like a cattle call. And you, there's no space left, and people are jostling, and he just wanted to get his little girl on without, you know, being traumatized on the plane. And so he's walking down the, down the little land, the thing, and he, he's going, gosh, I, man, I'm, he just felt so terrible that he had made it, you know, all about them, and he hadn't even thought about himself. And so he, it just caused him to go to have a moment of reflection about what he should do in the future when something happens and, and explore other possibilities rather than sort of being assertive and rude and drawing a conclusion that's unwarranted. So the, what I want to talk about is just this whole issue of things that bother us. But I want to kind of flip it and, and look at it from the, we're not bothered by some things that we should be bothered by. Most of us are preoccupied with the things that bother us in life, and we're largely ignorant of things that should be bothering us. If, you know, I think if we had our wits about us, we would look at certain situations and go, that's a disaster. And so I want to explore that for a moment, and we're going to look at a story in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to page, uh, if you have one of the paperback Bibles, under the chair seats in front of you, open it to page 770. Otherwise, it's Acts chapter 17. And it's, the story begins with a man named Paul who was a leader in the early church. And he goes to a city in Greece called Athens. And at that time, Athens was, it wasn't the military power of the world anymore, but it was still pretty much the philosophical, cultural capital of the world. Because Rome had conquered everything. But, you know, the people in Greece had been very influential in terms of the world at that time and throughout history. And Athens was just this amazing place. Beautiful buildings, you know, it, it, it just, it was one of those places you, you, you sightsee still. You, people, that's their main business in Athens is sightseeing, is, is tourism. And so Paul's not a tourist there. He's just kind of passing through town. Part of a missionary team dropped him off there, and he's waiting for another missionary team to come through, and they're going to go on. And so we're going to pick up the story in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians, this is an editorial from Luke, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So in other words, that was a part of the, the sort of the ethos of the city is like, what's the newest idea that we can talk about? Uh, Paul, in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the, the Areopagus was sort of like where the intelligentsia gathered and they would debate new ideas and, you know, defend uh, theories and philosophies. And they also had, you know, political meetings there. But it was a, it was a very famous place. And so this Jew, Paul, 
gets invited to give an address to all the, you know, the elite of the city. So he says, men of, that, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, I'll stop there for a second. There, there a number of historians, ancient historians, have corroborated that this actually exists. I don't know if it still exists today, but uh, there's a number of writers who said, in fact, that there was more than one of these. But the city was just full, literally, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of temples and statues and uh, deities. That The city of Athens was overrun with them. And at several places in the city, and Paul must have seen one of them, there was an, an altar, and there was an inscription on the stone altar that said, To an unknown God. And so Paul sees this, and he sees this as sort of a starting place for a conversation with them. So he says, now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one person he made every nation of people that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And that's a, that's a famous, that's a line from a, a, a pagan poet. Paul draws it in here to, to make his point. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being, that God, is like gold or silver or stones, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he is uh, by the man he is appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, I want to just give you to kind of track through this. I want to talk about what distressed Paul, why it distressed him. Let me start with those two points. What distressed Paul and why it distressed him. It says in the, in the first line there, Paul was waiting for them in Athens and he was greatly diset, distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And this word, distress there, it's an interesting word. It doesn't just mean anger. And it, it can mean to have a fit, to just lose it. But it, it has a range of meaning. It's, and, and think of it this way. It's like bringing together anger and compassion. And it was a familiar word to Jewish people. Because in the Old Testament, this was a word that over and over was used to describe how God felt when his people fell into idolatry. And it wasn't just like, I'm ticked off. It was, he was angry because his heart was broken out of how they treated him. But also, what idolatry does to people who engage in it is the thing that breaks God's heart the most. So 
Idolatry is substituting something that God made for God to meet the core needs of our life. That's what idolatry is, ultimately. It's where you take something that God made and you substitute it for God and you use it to meet the needs in your life that only God ultimately can meet. And, you know, as we've said before, to nuance it, people, work, there's many good things that God's made. And those things in God's will are resources for us, but they're not the source, that God himself is the source. And those resources will run out. And if you lean on anything, ultimately, that you can lose, then you've leaned on the wrong thing. And there isn't anything that, that most of us, or that all of us, treat as an idol that at some point we've learned we'll lose that thing. And then it jeopardizes us to an extreme degree when we do that. So everybody, this is one of the points that people who are, you know, theists and non-theists have said, is that everybody worships something. Everybody looks to something to give them meaning, to explain the big questions of life, to, to become a foundation to live on. And all the things that we believe, we believe by faith. Not just Christians and people who are theists believe by faith. You, the answers that science offers for certain things, you have to accept by faith. They're the big questions that, that at which point science can't answer, you have to take by faith. And even, uh, let, me, let me meddle it a little bit, people who really have an out-of-balance, inappropriate view of science, and this is what idolatry does, are blinded to the fact that a lot of scientists are really disillusioned with things like the peer review process. The peer review process is that the dirty little secret about that in science is it is incredibly flawed. In a number of the sciences, when peer-reviewed papers are published and people try to reproduce the results, they can't reproduce them. But we base governance and philosophy and beliefs on peer review and peer review is, it is corrupted. That's, that's the truth. That, the New York Times printed a long article about this, about scientists who were really frustrated at how corrupt the scientific endeavor has become. But people who believe that science gives the answer to everything, they don't even want to talk about that. They, they have all kinds of excuses for that. But that, this is one of the things that you'll see. I'm going to talk about in a second. Idolatry blinds us. Idolatry blinds us. We're going to worship something. And the question we have is, is what we worship worth our trust? And so Paul looked at this and said, this distressed me. This broke my heart. Because the word, when it says he saw the city was full of idols, it's a Greek word that can be, dis- that can be uh, translated two other ways. One is to smother or to choke. So Paul looked at humanity worshiping idols, and he saw the effect of it on them because he was an insightful person. He wasn't just like this uptight religionist, you know, uptight monotheistic Jew, and he just couldn't handle diversity. He saw past, he saw past the things that, that we oftentimes can't see. Because the thing about Athens at that time in, in particular was the architectural, artistic beauty that was invested into the idol worship was breathtaking. 
I mean, it was amazing what they built without the kind of uh, technology that we have today. It was the people put their heart and soul in it. But Paul saw, and this is the next point I want to make, is why it distressed him was he knew because the, the Jewish people, their whole history, the history of his people, which was put in the Old Testament, which Paul was you know, deeply, deeply soaked in, they were a people who had come from slavery and, and from nothing into this amazing civilization, and then they were corrupted by idolatry. And they battled idolatry all along the way. But at the times when they were thriving, idolatry was on the run. And the, the times when they were being smothered and choked and losing their humanity was when idolatry was on the rise. And so Paul knew that. And so he looked for the signs in Athens that, of what his people had gone through, and he could see them. And he was heartbroken. He was angry. He cared about the people. He just wasn't one of these reactionaries that just looked at things in a shallow way. He looked past it. Because here's what Paul knew from, his, from the Jewish people's experience. Idolatry blinds us. When, when you might have read in there, well, uh, Paul said, God doesn't made in temples. He doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. And he doesn't look like these little idols that you make. And it, it, there's a, in Isaiah 44, there's this long reflection from Isaiah speaking for God, saying to the people, do you realize that when you cut down a tree to fashion an idol, you spend all this time making it into a deity, and then you take the leftover wood and you cook your food on it? Does it ever make you pause and think, maybe I just burned God? It, it, It just, what idolatry does is it blinds you. You don't see how empty this exercise is. You look at something and you pray to something you made. That's what idolatry does. Well, any kind of idolatry, the idolatry of work, the idolatry of romance, the idolatry of power, the idolatry of politics, the idolatry of sex. Uh, there's all kinds of good things, really good things, that when we make them the best thing, God, or equal or above, they begin to destroy us. So they corrupt us. They don't just blind us, they corrupt us. I'll give you an example. Our society, most, most people today in America, it depends on how you poll people, but the secular view of the world, the word secular, secularum, is a word that means uh, of this world. And so basically it's come to define the spiritually minded and oriented versus the people who just say, I don't want that. I, I, you know, I want my life free from that prejudice and all that and because I believe in science or I believe in you know intelligence and humanity like people who are of faith don't believe in science or don't believe in humanity most of the greatest scientists in history and and, and many of the the highest most elite scientists today are, are believers but anyway the secular viewpoint says we got here as a process of random mutation and natural selection, which we call evolution. And so the problem with believing that is it doesn't leave you a basis for morality. And I'll give you an example of it. Back in the late 2000s, as the United States was involved in the war in Afghanistan, and we're, pretty, we're still involved there, but it was a, you know, a pretty big deal, right? We had hundreds of thousands of soldiers over there. We were hearing about it every day. And all kinds of nations uh, tried to 
invade Afghanistan and, you know, superpowers and, and ran with their tail between their legs. And so the United States said, we're going to be different. You know, we're not like them. And, but what they ran into on the ground was a completely different culture. And so they didn't want to fight everybody and kill everybody. They wanted to help. I mean, the idea was, let's help this, this nation uh, fix itself. I'm oversimplifying. Soldiers went in, and they encountered cultures that they, they couldn't even comprehend. And so what the military, in their wisdom, was to send anthropologists in with troops. And some of the anthropologists were in the military. And one of the things they ran into was this uh, widespread practice called bachibazi. How many of you heard that? Bachibazi. Okay. Bazi is children. Bachi is affection for. Going, it, it's pederasty. And it's, it was just a widespread practice for men, particularly men of rank, to buy boys as their sex toys. And, and the, the military ran into this everywhere. They would go into police stations and be working with the police station, and they would see, you know, offices with boys in them. And they go, is that kid in trouble? After a while, they start asking, you know, you start seeing these kids, this is weird. There's something about this. And they start asking questions, and they go, oh, that's his bocce boy. These, you know, preteen boys, teenage boys, they were just sex slaves. And the milit- there were times where... <laughs> American soldiers were, were pretty fed up with what they saw, and they took action against it, and they, some of them were kicked out of the military. And what the anthropologists said to them in their infinite wisdom was, our culture should not think that we have the moral high ground and that we can tell their culture what's right or wrong. We're already there fighting a war against them. I don't know what that says about our moral superiority, but... We don't have the right to tell them that's wrong. Now, I mean, this was in the New York Times. This was, this was a big discussion. And you can, you, know, you can look it up. People actually argued this point till they were without breath that we should not do anything to try to challenge that. And that, and that actually we were immoral if we did that because we were acting like we were morally superior. This is how the idea that we can, you know, the, 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 the idolatry of our own intellect can become something that corrupts us. And there are serious people. Now, and, I mean, if you bring it down to, like, day-to-day level, what it says is there's no, we're here by accident. Our life is meaningless. We're a, a, we're a product of natural selection and random mutations that there's no purpose to. And so there's no morality. There's no God behind it. You can have, we can explain, evolution can explain moral feelings but not moral obligations. Do you understand the difference? Evolutionary biology has spent a lot of time talking about this. We can explain why you have feelings of, of uh, uh, moral feelings caring for the poor. But there's no obligation in those because there's no basis. Secular people have argued this and said, listen, there are people from Oxford and Cambridge who've said, we've got to stop using this language of moral obligation because we're hypocritical or we're, uh, what's another word they use? Can't think of it. Uh, We're incoherent. 
Because there's no, if there's not a God, there's no obligation. And Christians have said that forever, right? So it undercuts. It's so funny. You go to a place like New York City, and I have family that live there, and New York City runs, is, runs on the idea of we shouldn't do this. We should do that. It is the epicenter of morality, but it's also the epicenter of secularism in our country, one of them. And it's just a contradiction. And, but idolatry blinds us to that. We don't see. And people say, <laughs> I've had people say this to me. They go, when I'm explaining you know, Christian perspective, they go, let's say about a particular topic. Well, you don't have the right to tell me what I can believe or not believe. And I've, I've had this conversation a couple times. I go, so you're telling me I don't have the right to tell you what you can't believe or what you should do or shouldn't do. But you're telling me that. What gives you the right to do that? Because see, people don't realize they smuggle in, the secular world smuggles in from God all this feeling. Well, what Paul was saying to these people was, you have these moral intuitions and these spiritual intuitions that don't match the God, that, these gods that you're serving, they aren't worthy of that. They can't sustain that. And the world around us is in the same boat. Paul is doing what we're supposed to be doing, the kind of conversations and dialogue we're supposed to have with folks, is to, is to start with their premises and show them the way you think is good up to a point, but it's inconsistent with this life you want to see us live out. You need to wrestle with that. Sometimes people haven't done that because this is what idolatry does. It blinds us. Okay, so Paul, the, the power of the gospel, not to jump too far ahead, the power of the gospel is it has the ability to open the eyes of people to see these inconsistencies. But it can't just be moral reasoning. You understand? Moral reasoning, abstract reasoning apart from God doesn't open anyone's eyes. It has no power to do that because a lot of people, really, they want to see good, good things happen in their heart. So there's secular people who, who seriously sacrifice for certain goods that Christians aren't even willing to sacrifice for. The gospel is the only thing that can open their eyes to see where they're really at. So Paul realizes that. He also knows this, that when we're into idolatry, here's, here's four things it does. It enslaves us. So it blinds us, it corrupts us, it enslaves us, and it'll enslave us to guilt. Because when we don't achieve what we desire, what we hope, what we worship will give us, we feel guilty. And one of the things that people constantly struggle with in our culture is guilt. Not moral guilt, guilt that they're not getting what, there's something wrong with them, they can't achieve their goals. Because they think, I will be worth something if I get this kind of a job, and I live in this kind of a place, and I marry this kind of a person, and I have these letters behind my name, these accomplishments, I'm part of these professional organizations. And when they fail to do that, they carry this terrible guilt around. That's crushing. Second, fear. Because if what we worship is threatened, we become afraid. We also get enslaved to anger. Because when what we worship is blocked, we get angry that we can't have it and even resentful at anyone that challenges us from pursuing that end. Last, we get driven. We get enslaved to drivenness. That we 
at points realize, why am I so driven? But it's like we can't stop doing it because when you begin to have an idol, it will drive you. And Jesus says he's the good shepherd. And what Jesus does is he invites us. He calls us to follow him. When you're a cattle, you get driven. Sheep are led and invited. That's why the kingdom of God is supposed to feel so different than religion. Because religion, it, it, you're just getting driven. So the last thing is, it, is we get enslaved because when you choose an idol, if you choose any number of idols besides God, and let me just say, we all do. Everyone that's in this room, we all wrestle with this. We enthrone us, and we domesticate God. We tame him. We make God someone who serves our ends. And there couldn't, you know, if you think about that, there could hardly be anything worse that we could do than that. Really. That's worse than bocce, uh, <coughs> bocce bozzi. And, you know, we could argue that point, but trust me, you don't get there until you do that. The first two commandments are about idolatry. And all the rest of the commandments, you, you break them if you break the first two. You will never break stealing unless you have an idol. And so many times in the church, we're just trying to change behavior. I just want people to be good. The gospel is not trying to make people good. It is, but not as the ultimate goal. It's trying to make people God's, you know, his. Because when we do that, goodness comes just naturally. It comes because we're, we're connected to the vine and we bear fruit and we're not doing it on our own. And so uh, when you make politics an idol, which is really easy to do in our culture, there's a reason why we do that. When we make politics an idol, it could be because we want security and when we make politics an idol, we're willing, like I, I see it every day on Facebook. People are worried about Russian collusion and the Russian hierarchy dividing our country. So in the name of not dividing our country, we will do all these things that divide our country. That's the blindness that comes from making politics an idol because we think politics will make us secure. They won't. They never have. Because the problem, the problem is not political. The problem is sin. And all government can do is restrain sin in some way. Do you understand that? It cannot make people good. And so we fight with each other like if we could just get the levers of government, everybody will be good and everything will be better. I don't mean that's not a noble idea. It can't, we have to find a way to do this. It doesn't mean we can't speak straight talk to one another. But the tone and, and all the ways that we do it on both sides of the aisle are dividing the country more than it's already divided. That was my political statement for the day. Uh, no one's responsible for it but me. Uh, why does idolatry distress, not distress us the way it distressed Paul? Because I was pondering this myself and thinking, there's times where idolatry doesn't distress me. I think generally it does, because it's part of my job. I, I deal with it every day. But I struggle with idolatry. Not just you, I struggle with it. We all do. When I say we, I mean me too. I'm under that banner of we is me. And part of it is, I don't have the heart of God the way Paul did. We don't have the heart of God. We can, and we have it to some degree, 
But when we can see idolatry and it doesn't distress us, we don't, we're not seeing what Paul saw and what he understood. So let me tell you a couple of things. Martin Luther said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Our hearts make idols. Everything, that, every good thing that God has made, we have proven we can turn it into an idol. Everything. That's hard to think about. Because you think of your kids, can I make my children an idol? Oh, yeah. Can I make theology an idol? Oh, yeah. Can I make some cause an idol? Some good cause, some cause that's screaming for support an idol? Oh, yeah. Can I make myself an idol? For sure. That's probably the one that's the easiest to turn into an idol. And the older you get, the harder it is to resist doing that. Tell you. So we get slowly captured by these idols and... The thing is, like the Athenians, this is what distressed Paul the most. And he said this to him. He said, men of Athens, I can see that you're a religious people. And he said, I went through your city and I saw all the idols. And he said, I found one idol that said to an unknown God. And that's a picture of oftentimes where we, here's God among all the other idols. We try to fit him into our, all of our other idols. All the things that, that compete for our affection and our devotion. That we're parceling parts of our lives to all the time. Because what idols do is, here's the thing about your heart and my heart. Whatever we worship, we make a covenant with. We are covenant-making people. That's why Paul said when you sleep with someone, you connect to them. Because sex reflects worship in a very unique way. And it's meant to bond pleasure, procreation, partnering. And so when we worship anything, we make a covenant with that thing, and it gets our heart. It gets our affection. You can't get something from something that you don't give something to. And you may think at the beginning, this is really cheap. This deal I'm making to, to worship this thing, my kids, my kids do demand a lot. But when you're letting your kids become idols, when they first come into the world, oh my gosh, it's like, oh, doesn't it? You just, I remember when I was holding Stephen the first time, he was actually the first baby I'd ever held. I don't know how that had ever happened. I never held a baby until then. I think I was afraid of kids. I remember holding Stephen and looking at him and just like, all this love came out of my heart. I didn't have any idea was there. Like, wow. Now I had some sense of what God's father heart was like, right? But pretty soon, Stephen is like a little trophy for me, right? He's the, look, he's, a, he's in this high of a percentile. I'm dropping all the things, you know, look how smart he is. Look how this he is. Look how that is. What's that all about? Right? It was about me. And when times where my heart was broken over the way that as my kids grew up, like all kids do, they misbehave, I realized many times what I felt the worst about was how that reflected on me. And I realized, oh, I'm making my kids into an That's what happens. So Paul said to, the, to these Athenians, he said, listen, you guys need to hear the gospel. You need to hear the gospel. And so what he said to them was, he said, look at these idols you created. Look at these, look. Remember he said, look. Look. These idols you created didn't create you. God did. Then he said, look, these idols don't sustain you. God does. Then he said, look, these idols don't rule over the nations because they had, every nation had its territorial deity amongst other deities. And that deity, you know, Mars or Dionysus or, uh, you know, all the different deities that would characterize sort of the culture they would worship them because they wanted the benefits that came from that. Goddesses of fertility, etc. He said, those don't rule over the nations. God does. 
And he said, look, these idols are not your father. God is. Look, the God you worship in ignorance has made himself known and salvation known through the man Jesus Christ, whom God appointed and authenticated by raising him from the dead. The death he died, by the way, for your sake. You know, Paul's sermons were like summaries. Like what's written down there would be summaries. But resurrection doesn't mean anything unless you know someone's raised from the dead. And what was that death about? It was about his substitutionary giving his life for us. And so they were like, the resurrection? I don't know about this. You know, when people today tell you that the Christian resurrection story is just one of many resurrection stories that everybody believed in the Old Testament, not these people. People, that's just a line that people say to try to diminish the gospel. It's not true. There were, there were rising from the dead stories of gods in the ancient world, but they're nothing like this. Nothing like it. When you start comparing them carefully, and scholars who aren't even Christians have done that and said, we've got to stop using this. It's not true. The Christian story of the resurrection of Christ is, has only the shallowest similarities to some of these death and resurrection stories in the ancient world. It's totally unique. And that's why they sneered at it back then, because the gospel is really unique. But it says, did you notice, some of them said, hey, you know, you're a knucklehead, get out of here. Others said, we'd like to hear you, again, which is an honest thing. They weren't ready to be persuaded, but some of them at that moment, their eyes were open, and they began to follow Jesus. And you think, wow, that was pretty amazing for Paul to walk into sort of the lion's den, the philosophical lion's den, and come away with members of the Oropagus who are followers of Jesus now. But that's what the gospel does. It's the only thing that will. So he basically said at the end, too, God is, has been patient with your ignorance, but not anymore, because now you know the truth. And, and that's the thing. God says to us, too, as you hear the truth about idolatry, you're responsible to take time to reflect on this and, that, and apply it to your life. That's the three things I want you to, to take away from this. You can, what you can do about it. So what, what did, what distressed Paul, why it distressed Paul, why it often fails to distress us, because we are struggling with idolatry and we're blinded to it. So when you hear the gospel, it begins to awaken you that there's something going on. So what do you do? Real simple, real quick. First, you've got to be willing to examine yourself and reflect on whether or not you're engaged in some kind of idolatry with good things. And one of the ways that you can do that is, and you know, I know some of you get tired of me talking about feelings, which is interesting. Having feelings. Okay. Anyway, our feelings tell us what's going on in our heart. And if you will take feelings, real strong feelings that you have in situations, like you know, have you ever, everybody's done it. You know when you pull up a weed out of the ground and you pull the roots up and there's dirt connected to the roots? When you look at, if you just look at the, the weed in the ground, the feeling, it doesn't necessarily give you any idea of what's going on below ground level. When you pull it up, you see things that you didn't see before if you reflect on it. And one of the things that you'll see is, is it possible that this reaction you're having to a situation is exposing some idolatry in your life? It's, it's really awkward to have that inner conversation. And, 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 and if you aren't the final judge of this, because sometimes we can beat ourselves up and we shouldn't. But ask God, is this resentment I feel over my lack of a promotion? I know it's human when something is, I've worked hard for, I don't realize it, but is there anything else going on there? Is there idolatry where I'm not content with you and just serving you where I am, but I have to have that because I won't be complete or I won't be fulfilled or I can't get the money 
to, to do these other things that then will get me significance or whatever. Do you ever have those conversations? Do you have them frequently enough that it's meaningful? Because you have to do that. There's, there's, there's three things. Examine yourself and see if there's any idols in your heart. Second, after you do this work with your heart, realize, like Paul, you're called to engage the community where you live. Back in that first paragraph, here's what Paul did. He went to the synagogue and talked about this. He went to the marketplace and talked about this. Then he went to the Oropagus, which is you know, sort of like the academy. So he, he went to the Jewish community, church, religious people, people of faith. He talked to the people in the trades and the, you know, everybody in the public square. And then he went to the academy. All of us are in at least one of those. And I want to ask you a question. Does it distress you? Not because of what it does to you, but does it distress you to see your community choked with idolatry? Should you have the heart of God? And, I, and this is, I'm, I'm, you know, Kathy always tells me, don't say it should, don't say ought, but I always say, it's in the Bible, so I'll use it some. But I don't want, I don't want you to, to guilt you about this. I want to tell you, our community, this is part of why Jesus came, was people's, we are losing our humanity little by little. And there aren't political solutions. There aren't educational solutions. There aren't economic solutions. To they don't work. We have the highest standard of living we've ever experienced as a nation. And our nation is struggling. And, and I wouldn't say it's because the gospel is on the ascendancy in America. I just want to encourage you to, to, to dust off the gospel and begin to engage your, your, the people in these, these situations that you're in with this message. And last of all, and this may surprise you, if you want to really lay a one-two punch on idolatry, enjoy God and enjoy all the good gifts God made. Enjoy your hobbies, enjoy your families, enjoy good food, enjoy your friends, Enjoy movies, enjoy nature, enjoy travel, enjoy politics, enjoy everything deeply. It brings glory to God when we enjoy everything he made. And if we enjoy him first, we will more fully enjoy what he's made. I've already pressed into the don't be idolaters. But so many Christians have this impoverished view of life in the world like I kind of should feel guilty that I enjoy sex. I, I said that. You should never feel guilty that you enjoy sex. Sex is a gift from God. It's a good thing. There is a female body part that, as far as scientists have discovered, its only purpose is pleasure. And only women have it. I, I go, God, what is that about? <laughs> only women get that? That's right. Its only purpose is pleasure. Pretty wild idea. You heard that in church. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. You shouldn't feel guilty about Food. Kathy told me years ago, she was so glad that when we finally got cable and she turned me on to the Food Network because I found my inner cook, because I, I love to cook. I don't think I'm a very good cook, but I like to cook. It's just, this is so much fun. And our kitchen is ruined every time I do it. It took me a day and a half to, to, to uh, I, I, I made something for Marilyn King. And it took me a day to clean up the kitchen after making a pot roast, right? A pot roast. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. It was so good browning it and smelling it. And I did take a couple of bites out of it before I gave it to Marilyn. 
but there was so much joy. Do you have anything in your life that you enjoy like that? You know, Sean playing the guitar. What is it? Enjoy it. Do you like studying, teaching, something artistic, some weird little thing? You know, you like the, you're studying, you get the great joy out of studying the legs on a butterfly. Okay. <laughs> There's something there. It's God-given. So that's, that's what I want you to walk away with. Examine your hearts, engage our, our community, the world around you, and enjoy the world that God made without making it God. Amen? Why don't you stand up? Let's pray. Father, we uh, are so grateful to see these kinds of stories that inform our lives and uh, make sense of things, help put pieces together that a lot of times we, we can't put together ourselves. Uh, I pray that your spirit would remind us of your goodness and how great you are, that we could enjoy you and every good thing you've made, and that we could be quick to recognize when we're making something good you've made, God substituted. And we would be negligent if we didn't admit that we do that. We've probably done it this morning, some of us. But we ask you to forgive us. Ask for the good news about Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds that we could begin to see what we can't see.